Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Brick and Elm Magazine, the new hyper-local print magazine I helped launch in May with Michelle McCaffrey. Our November-December issue comes out this week, and I'm just super excited about its content. From the cover story, to all the other features, to the photography, the events, everything. If you are a dedicated listener to this podcast, I encourage you to also subscribe to Brick and Elm. It's only $34.99 a year for our print issues. They'll come directly to your house. And this isn't any slim 30-page magazine either. Our last three issues have all been over 100 pages. They're just packed full of content, and it's all local. Local people, local stories, local advertisers. It's even printed locally. So I'd love for you to subscribe. To do so, visit brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Brady Clark. I've known Brady all my life. He and my brother were good friends uh, when they were kids. They grew up together. But Brady is one of those Amarillo guys who just has so many stories and so many good ideas, and I run into him everywhere, and I'm always glad when I do. He's the co-founder and executive director for Square Mile Community Development. That's an organization working to improve the San Jacinto neighborhood. But he also has a background as a pastor. He's a consultant for nonprofits. He's one of the founders of The Father's Cry, an international fatherhood ministry. We talk about all those things, including the time Brady spent in the now notorious Amarillo punk scene in the 1990s. This is an interesting one. Here's Brady Clark. Brady Clark, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's uh, it's an honor to have you here. We have known each other for a long time, most most of our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I imagine. In fact, I should probably say that you and you and my brother have been friends since you were both little kids, and so we've got a fairly long history. But I uh, I want to start with you the same way I start with all of my guests and ask you why you're here in Amarillo. So how did you end up here in the first place? Oh man, um, well you know, born and raised here, obviously. And like every, um, you know, teenage kid, especially it seemed like in the early nineties could not wait to get out of here and, you know, did the typical I'm leaving, I'm never coming back. Don't want to live in this place. This is horrible. And, um, traveled, did a bunch of different things, ended up in Dallas, running some nonprofits and, um, going to school down there. And then about 11 years ago, um, I guess a little bit longer than that, about 12, 13 years ago, I started feeling the itch and, um, you know, it was kind of getting, burned out on the city and uh, loved it. But at the same time, you know, the pace and everything and thought about coming back and just being closer to the mountains, a little bit closer to like, you know, the outdoor things that I love to do. And family was here. And I started every time I come visit, I drive there and be like, you know what, this place is actually kind of pretty hmm. and seeing more value in it. And just, um, you know, over time, I just really kind of fell back or fell in love with the area and fell back in love with Amarillo. So Came back here to, um, you know, kind of keep doing the work that I was doing and found it to be a really great place to do that. And um, yeah, so in 11 years, I'm back. So I I, uh, I don't want to gloss over the work you do now or the work that you did in Dallas or any of that stuff, but I do want to go back sort of to your, your younger days, your oh, teen yeah. years, uh, because I know um, that during that time, like you were involved with a lot of a lot of the punk scene in Amarillo, Absolutely. a lot of the uh, you know kids who were maybe on the fringes, and 
uh, grew up in that scene. So I, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, our, my story is it's interesting. Our family was, um, you know, we were by all, you know, measurements, we were pretty normal. Um, you know, my dad worked his way up in the hospital system, ended up being a senior VP at the Baptist Hospital for the merger. And, um, you know, we looked pretty decent outside, lived in Paramount Terrace, you mm -hmm. know, did all the things, uh, played soccer my whole life. But we were pretty dysfunctional and broken on the inside. And as a result of that, I ended up leaving home at 16. Okay. Um, you know, so was a soccer player, was a skateboarder, you know, was super into punk rock and all the, you know, alternative music scene or whatever that was at that time. And uh, just, you know, was angry and hurt. And so left home at 16 and, you know, really spent most of my kind of formative teenage years super involved in the counterculture and the underground and uh, in that world, which was around music and art and, you know, poetry and writing and revolution and, you know, <laughs> idealism and all the things. And so that was really, I mean, honestly, it was really formative of me growing up and my view of this town. Because uh, at that point in time, you know, back in the 90s, early 90s, you know, if you, you know, had blue hair or, you know, rode a skateboard or were into like any kind of alternative, whatever, it was rough, you know? Um, and so, you know, we fought a lot <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, it was just, uh, it was pretty gnarly in that point. My family and I, you know, we actually through that whole process were reconciled. There was a lot of change in me and my dad, a bunch of things. In fact, he just wrote a book that, has a bunch of stuff about that. Yeah. And uh, so that was, yeah, that really, I think, formed my view of this community, good and bad, because I saw a lot of really, really cool things. They were all underground, but they were awesome. Mm -hmm. And then also saw just, you know, a lot of the old school kind of bigotry and prejudice and resistance to something that wasn't normal, you know. And a lot of people maybe don't know that scene, but they've heard the stories about Brian Dinicky. Yeah. They know, you know, some of the stuff that happened uh, during the nineties. And I mean, you were a contemporary to that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, the whole, with the Brian Dennecke and with that whole story, I mean, his, he was a friend. We played in bands like his band and my band played together all the time. Uh, his older brother is one of my best friends. He actually, the night he was killed, he left my house and, uh, then, you know, all the things happened after that. So that was very much like those were our friends and contemporaries. Um, he's a little bit younger than I was, so he was kind of a little brother. Uh, but yeah, that was very formative in in what we saw. I was going to say that those experiences, at, at least you know, from those the people who lived that uh, that I've talked to, like were very formative, and yeah. and not just personally formative, um, like you've described, but also in like how people felt about the city itself. Absolutely, um, and a lot of those people have not come back here. You know, maybe left, and, and they're like, yeah, that's. That's my past. I'm, I'm not going to do that. And, and you've ended up back in this community. And I wonder if you could, could kind of talk about the Amarillo that you know now versus the Amarillo of back then. Golly. Um, you know, there's so many things that don't change and there's so many things that really are fluid and transformative. And I think, you know, Amarillo back then seemed more insular, more closed. Um, you know, we were, I think, especially maybe our size at that time. We're very much a city on the plains, you know, mm -hmm. and we still had, um, I think, a stronger small town vibe to us, you know, and, and the mentality around that was also there, um, you know, in good and bad ways. You know, I mean, there's a lot of great, you know, there's a loyalty, there's community, there's relationships going on in a small town, which is a beautiful thing. But there's also 
you know, like I said, that resistance mm-hmm. to, to things that are different and things that feel like may threaten the way of life that we know and we're comfortable with. And I think that shifted um, more so. I see that as one of the biggest changes. Um, I see people being a lot more open. I think that, um, you know, we're much more receptive to, to um, different cultural ideas. And, you know, we want more, I think, arts and things like that. I mean, that's my perception. It may have been like that back then. Um, it didn't feel like it. And I was younger. But now I think I do see Amarillo as really trying to hold on to who we are as this, you know, Northwest Texas uh, you know, small town, we've got our roots, we've got history, but at the same time, we want to embrace more and mm-hmm. be bigger and be more open and have much more, uh, diversity and cultural openness and more things to do and experience. And, and I really value that a lot. And I'm, I'm really pretty stoked about how our community has shifted. And I mean, I think it's generational a lot, yeah, you know, you're right. um, and I think that because there are, People from my generation, you know, or our generation, I guess, you know, we're Gen Xers. So, you know, we were, there was a lot of discontent in that Mm -hmm. and growing up with that. And there's a certain amount of like nihilism, it seemed, you know, and uh, so we were all listening to Nirvana at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like we're all like angry and trying to figure out why, you know, Um, but I think now that, you know, our generation is in a place where we can guide and make decisions and be involved in bigger picture things and, you know, politics and social, you know, issues and sit on boards and own businesses that's helped shift how our community is Hmm. in a lot of positive ways. I think. Tell me about those years once you initially left Amarillo um, and you went from, you know, sort of being this disaffected youth who moved out early and, um, you know, was, was involved in that scene. And then you made your way to Dallas and got involved in ministry there. I did. I did. I, um, you know, was raised, um, in a house that we went to church and things and it was, you know, it was part of kind of thing. It was a part of our culture as a family, but it wasn't really, we didn't have a lot of, it wasn't a vibrant faith community, I guess okay. you could say. Um, I had grandparents that were, um, they were amazing and, uh, my mom was, but you know, my dad's making money and working and doing the thing. So we went to church, but it wasn't a part of our existence. Uh, so there's a concept of God, but no real like connection. And um, I think after, you know, moving out, went to jail, did some stupid things. And that was this wake up call because, you know, at the time I was 18 years old. I've been an honor student, was a varsity athlete, you know, had the opportunity to go do things. I went and played soccer and did some stuff in England and uh, always thought I'm going to, you know, go do whatever I want. And then I get my head right. Right. Then I'm going to get back together and then I'm going to go, you know, live my life and do the normal things. But um, going to jail was kind of pivotal because it was like, oh crap, like this may not turn out okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> this like, was not part of the 10 year plan. I don't like prison is not something I ever want to experience. Like I got to do something different and, you know, really reevaluated my concepts of God and faith and all that. And really decided that, you know, I really tapped into this concept of, you know, there is evil in this world and there is good in this world. And I wanted to be a part of what was good. And I rep- that was really represented to me in understanding and a knowledge of, of God and what that means internally. So that began to direct my life. Um, still very much and still playing and still involved in the punk rock scene and all that, but really trying to focus the angst and the anger into more something more positive. And so from there, decided I wanted to go down, study religion, do all that. And, um, uh, Ended up picking a school that was tiny, 
that I was like, I'm not going here. I don't like Dallas. I, this is a city I dislike a lot. Don't want to stay in Texas. Um, you know, and whatever, but this school had an inner city ministry program Hmm. and they were one of the only ones that did, they're working in the ghetto all the time. And I really wanted to get involved and do something to help people, but I was not interested in, you know, at that point in time, like being a youth minister or any, you know, any of that kind of stuff. What school was it? Um, Dallas Christian. Okay. So Dallas Christian. So I went down and uh, checked it out and it just everything clicked and it was the right thing to do and uh, was involved and ran an urban ministry program down there. Ended up running a the Dallas branch of a national urban ministry organization called World Impact. They're based out of South Central LA and started right after the Compton riots. Mm. And so, you know, we lived in the inner city. We worked in the inner city, uh, you know, where our neighbors were, you know, where that was our world. And I was the only white guy for a long ways down there. And uh, that really, I think, affected how I viewed working with folks in poverty, working with disenfranchised, working with under-resourced people, and began to see how a lot of the things that we do as well-intentioned um, gestures are really actually harmful and pretty hmm. detrimental. So, you know, that was, that kind of began to dictate my path and trajectory. It was punk rock ideals and, you know, turned like really, I guess, merged with, um, faith and a, and a determination to use those to create positive change. So. And then you ended up back in Amarillo doing, I guess, a similar kind of work, maybe a similar mm-hmm. focus. Can you compare inner city urban Dallas to the parts of this city that might, we might consider more urban? I mean, it's hard to say that there's an inner city Amarillo. Yeah. Does the, the things that you dealt with there, do they transfer to here? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so the neighborhood I lived in was, in Dallas was, for the most of the time I was in there, was um, South Dallas. So it was Fair Park area. Okay. And at one point in time, that had been a very vibrant, thriving community. It was a very wealthy Jewish community for a long time. And then, you know, back in the day, you know, there was white flight. They all took off to the suburbs, right. became, you know, um, economically depressed, became inner city, became predominantly African-American. And, um, you know, that it, when I was there, it was in the top 10, um, the federal database, top 10 most violent neighborhoods in the country. Okay. So it was pretty gnarly in a lot of ways. So that doesn't particularly the violence and all that doesn't, we don't have an equivalent here in Amarillo. Uh, we have a different structure. We have much more small town feel to it. Um, and our development of a city reflects that. Right. However, you know, the patterns of Dallas where you see in a affluent neighborhood or a solid middle class neighborhood over time become more economically depressed. Right. And then it switches to rentals from homeowners. And then you see, you know, poverty rise, all the negative stats rise with it. That absolutely applies. And our communities, our neighborhoods in Dallas, like San or er, in Amarillo, like San Jacinto, um, Eastridge, South Lawn, uh, a lot of those neighborhoods really reflect that pattern start out real solid. And then as people aged, they moved out, they were upwardly mobile, they sold the houses. And a lot of times people came in, turned into rent houses. And then you end up with neighborhoods like San Jack, South Lawn, Eastridge, uh, Hamlet, some Mm -hmm. of those. So tell me about the work then that you ended up doing once you came back here. Well, I came back actually um, and started, I was a director for an organization uh, based out of Pennsylvania that was called Youth Advocate Program. So we were working with 
Pottery Miranda County Juvenile Justice and AISD, and we were taking their kids who were on probation or at the highest risk of failing, matching them up with mentors and working them to get out of the system. I love that. It was a, the programming was very influential on the way that I viewed working with folks because it was strength-based. Mm-hmm. So we have this kid who's, you know, on probation. They're, you know, on track to basically get chewed up by the system. They're probably going to end up in prison at some point in time. And so we would work with them, match them up with the mentor. They'd work with them like six, five, six hours a week. And instead of focusing on what they were doing wrong, it began, hey, let's figure out what these kids' strengths are. Hmm. Let's figure out what their talents are. Let's figure out what they're good at. And let's build into them and build community around that to really build, um, you know, a sense of belief that they can accomplish something instead of just focusing on, you got to do this better. You got to do this better. Because otherwise they're, in most cases, like that sort of lifestyle and the poverty and all those things is cyclical. I mean, they, oh, yeah. like they're just going through the same things that maybe the previous generation did. Absolutely. And unless you break that cycle, there's got to be something that you insert into the spokes that kind of launches them yeah. down a different path. 100%. And, you know, it's it's super discouraging for any of us, right, to be like, hey, here's something that you're not good at. And you've all of a sudden have this expectation to be good at this thing that you just are not gifted at, you know what I mean? Whatever it is, it's like, well, you got somebody who's not administrative and if you're trying to turn them into an administrative person and that's not their natural, you know, inclination, it's going to be frustrating. They're going to be, you know, they're going to probably be beat down and it's probably not going to be successful at best. They'll become competent, (laughs) but they're not going to excel at it. Now you flip that over and that same person that you're trying to turn into administrator is really, really good at marketing Instead of saying, hey, we need you to be great at administration, get them up to a level where they're, you know, they can handle it. It's not going to be great, but it's also not going to be destructive to them and let them run with their talent and their gifted, what brings them joy, what their natural giftings are. They're going to be way more successful and way more happy. Hmm. And it's going to really help build them into, you know, whatever that means to them to be successful instead of constantly being frustrated that they're not good enough at this thing that they're expected to be. So we took that same philosophy into that and we began to see, I mean, amazing results. How long did you do that work? Did that here in Amarillo for golly, um, opened up the office, got it going, did it for about two and a half, three years until I was recruited by Hillside to, um, go work for them and to be, um, the director of urban missions, director of local missions, and then a campus pastor at, for their campus that we built up on Northeast 24th and Grand. Okay. So we're for Hillside for about five years after that. And that was a, you know, that, that's an interesting um, decision for Hillside and, and one that, that I think is a good decision to open up a campus mm-hmm. in an underserved part mm-hmm. of the community. I mean, obviously there are a lot of small, older churches, historic churches up in mm-hmm. that area um, but those are the churches that struggle and that don't yeah. always have the funding, that don't always have, Absolutely. you know, the the resources to meet community needs. And so for, to have a larger church, like putting a, a satellite church in that area, seems like it would work. It seems like it would be a good decision. Now, it's not always that easy, yeah. I, yeah. I imagine. No, I appreciate it. You know, so I was, um, I've been a church planner in Dallas um, started inner city, small churches, uh, mainly refugee based, minority based. Um, I was a pastor of a small African-American church and we did things very differently. Like we did house churches. It was not, you know, it did not represent what people's stereotype of an African-American church was, hmm. you know, 
uh, we did it differently. It was really successful. And, um, you know, we did see the struggle for those faith communities to make it into a, in a community where there wasn't financial resources. Right. I didn't like big churches. I didn't like mega churches. That's for sure. You know? And so going to work for one was kind of like, what in the world am I doing? And why did they want me to come work for them? Yeah. You know, like I am not, I'm not these guys, you know? And, you know, in general, it was a really positive experience. I really appreciated their heart to try and be something for the whole community and not just their demographic. Right. Uh, so, you know, it was um, it was a noble idea. And, you know, there's a lot of really good things that came out of it. Um, and I appreciated, you know, the desire to do that because a lot of folks don't have even that. And so that's an important you may not know how to do it and you may stumble through something, but the desire to at least do it is, is noble and it's valid. Tell me about square mile and how that developed. Well, after about five years, um, everything with Hillside was kind of done and I was, had been talking for about a year before my wife was kind of like, Hey, why are you still doing this? And you would rather be doing other things. And you know, so what's going to happen? I was like, I have no idea. You know, I'm going to pray about it and we'll see what happens. Um, a group of pastors, some other community leaders, we had been talking about, Hey, you know, we see a lot of really great programming, a lot of great organizations in Amarillo, a lot of wonderful, amazing nonprofits. The focus oftentimes is, you know, needs based. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was like, Hey, they're struggling. We need to meet needs. And that's hundred percent true. And, you know, needs based programming and organizations are valid and necessary, you got to stop the bleeding. Right. But what we weren't seeing and and for me in the, you know, the past decade of work that I've been doing, um, we didn't see a lot of focus on long-term transformation. And okay. so we kind of were talking and thought, Hey, you know, maybe it'd be cool if we started trying to do some bigger projects that were bringing in resources to a community and trying to build more community around that. So we just kind of started brainstorming around and talking. And then out of that, we came up with this concept of square mile community development. The reason we started square mile was, or the name behind square mile came from San Jacinto to be really honest um, out of all the neighborhoods that need support and help in Amarillo, San Jacinto was kind of the easiest. I mean, it, I shouldn't be saying this, but I'm going to, you know, it's the easiest, like it's, it's the least intimidating to the majority of Amarillo. Because people have spent time there. If you go down 6th Street, 100%. you're right in the middle of, Absolutely. of San Jacinto. Absolutely. I mean, it's not the north side. It's right. not the barrio. It's not northeast Amarillo. It's not geographically across town, right? It's in between Western and Georgia. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's five minutes from wherever you're going to be. You know, if you're in Central Cross from the country club. 100%. <laughs> like, this is totally not scary. You know, like we're going to go down to 6th Street and get a beer and a burger kind of thing, you know? So that neighborhood, for that reason, we thought, hey, this is an opportunity to try and work in this neighborhood that is going to have, or going to be less intimidating for people to come into and help and support hmm. because it seems more accessible and it's familiar. Um, people have a history there. I mean, my granddad was born on a kitchen table, you know, three or four houses off of sixth street. Wow. And uh, so, you know, my family has history there. So it was that. And then um, San Jacinto is almost exactly one square mile in, in kind of its definition. So we decided to call it square mile and San Jacinto was our focus, our primary focus without excluding anything else. So, um, yeah, so we decided, Hey, if we're going to do this and if I'm going to jump into this, we wanted to say, we're going to go big. 
Um, we're going to try and do community development type of projects. We're going to not necessarily forego doing needs-based stuff, but we're really going to try and focus on bigger picture type of issues mm -hmm. that can create transformation in a neighborhood so that we're not constantly trying to go back and, you know, stop, plug the leaks, right. you know? So that was, that was kind of the philosophy behind it. So in, instead of the, to use the old <clears throat> adage, instead of giving a man a fish, you're, you're teaching people to fish and giving them access to the lake. Right. So tell <laughs> yeah, tell me what that looks like. I mean, it, expand that idea of in real terms, like what does community development look like? Golly. I think, I mean, that really, it depends. I think different people have different philosophies behind community development for us. Um, we've identified kind of five things that we looked at to say, all right, this is what we think makes up a healthy neighborhood. So you've got to have uh, economic development. You got to have access to make a living. Um, you've got to have access to good housing. So economic development, housing, education, you've got to have access to good schools or supplemental education around that. Um, health is the, the fourth one. Um, so you've got to have access to healthcare. Uh, you've got to have, you know, when we look at health holistically, healthy eating, different things like that, access to good food, all that goes into health. And then the fifth one for us was spiritual care. Um, you know, most of us, I'm a Christian, most of the people, all the people on my board are, you know, we are a faith-based organization without being a faith-based organization. Okay. So we're driven by our, basically everybody is driven because of our faith and what we feel is just and what we feel is right. But we're not technically a faith-based organization um, because we're not trying to, you know, go out and, you know, just say our whole purpose is to, you know, see souls saved. You know, okay. our purpose is to help people and build into their life to help them be what they were created to be, whatever that looks like for them. Uh, and to do good. And we want to do good in this world based on our faith. And so that's kind of the guiding principle. So spiritual care is a big part of it. Um, we also don't view spiritual care just from the Christian perspective because we're not exclusive. So we don't believe that, you know, just because your spiritual practice, if you have one, is it has to look like ours. We want people to basically feel okay that we're still going to work with them and help them whether they have any type of belief system or whether they're, you know, whether they don't. So spiritual care for us means also access to um, counseling, to support systems, to networks of people who care for them as a whole person, in addition to their religious tradition as okay. well. So uh, for us, those are kind of the five key areas that dictate what community development looks like. And so we try and make sure that any programming that we get into, A, is empowerment-based, so we want people to be able to do it for themselves. We want to support them, resource them, educate them, hold hands, put our arm around them, whatever it is, but it's about them doing it. We want them to have ownership of things. And, you know, that's kind of the guiding focus behind this. And I, I think the San Jacinto area is an interesting place to, to throw that focus because, I mean, over the past few years, we've seen it be uh, sort of the epicenter for a couple of the, like, really interesting projects you know related to meeting some of those needs like heal the city yeah, yeah. is based there um nuke city veg you know with the the urban farming mindset mm -hmm. and i know that you're a part of that too i i wonder if you could kind of explain why san jack is beyond the accessibility of it yeah, yeah. why is it such a good place to to kind of test some of these initiatives and you know work to meet needs but also with this with this much broader mindset um, so San Jack's different from a lot of the areas in Amarillo. Um, you know, the barrio has, it, it, it has a history. 
it has a culture. It has an identity mm-hmm. uh, as, you know, um, is, is, you know, a Latino community it always has. Uh, if you look at North Heights, the Heights has always been an African-American community. And so it has its own identity. Um, Eastridge is a little different, um, but for the past, you know, what, 40 years, um, Eastridge has really had this refugee component that's mm-hmm. been a part of it and its identity around that. San Jacinto is, um, you know, has this historic nature to it. But when you look at it and you break, break it down demographically, it's super diverse. Okay. So you get everybody, you know, it's not, this is a black neighborhood. This is a Mexican neighborhood. This is a, you know, Asian neighborhood. It's like, this is a, everybody's in here. Um, and everybody is typically there's older folks that are there that have been there for forever. And you've got blue collar folks, you've got middle, lower middle class folks, and then you have, you know, kind of the urban poor Mm -hmm. and every racial group is represented in there. So to begin to work in that neighborhood, it's a great barometer of how to really effectively work in a very diverse and somewhat fragmented community, as opposed to a community that's a little more homogenous and has a stronger sense of identity and community around it. So it makes it more challenging, but it also is a good barometer to see kind of what works. Um, and, you know, Hill, the city is wonderful. Nuke city. We, <laughs> we drug Nuke city in, um, Danny Milius is one of our good friends, former guest on this podcast. Yeah. Former guest on this podcast. And we love Danny. Uh, I heard he was doing urban farming. Uh, we got a little chunk of land on, on Sixth street donated to us as a parking lot. And uh, we wanted originally, and we still do, we wanted to put a neighborhood grocery store in San Jacinto. But, you know, when we started Square Mile five years ago, we had zero money Mm -hmm. and we had zero, you know, nobody knew us. We just started. We had no name recognition. We had no budget. So we were like, well, you know, raising three quarters of a million dollars to put in a grocery store is probably not feasible. So we got this land done and we're like, but there's this guy doing urban farming. Like, I bet we could throw a farm on 6th Street. So I called up Danny and I was like, hey, man, got this idea. I want to rip up a parking lot and put a farm on it. You want to do it? And he was like, yeah, dude, let's do this. <laughs> so like 100% no questions asked. Um, he loved it. Neighborhood, you know, whole nine yards. But it just there's just something about San Jacinto that has so much potential. 6th mm-hmm. Street corridor, the whole thing. It just there's a feel about it that says, you know what? This can be a part of Amarillo that is transformed and really is for everybody. Um, and we don't want to see, you know, I mean, we want to see it develop, but we don't want to see um, any type of gentrification. We don't yeah. want to see poor people ran out. We just want to see more diversity, economic diversity represented within there and to make the neighborhood better and safer for everybody, regardless of whether they're in a HUD house or whether they own their own home. You know? I was gonna say that's that's one of the I guess one of the concerns I've had because if there is a neighborhood in Amarillo that would be subject to gentrification, like it would be Sanjac. I mean, because that's, that's everybody, every tourist who comes through Amarillo is going to Sixth Street. Hundred percent. And you get a couple of blocks off of Sixth Street in either way, and you start to run into some of the urban blight, some of the the housing that's um, that's not very desirable, but. It's still got the sunset area. It's got some really unique yeah. architecture. It's got some really beautiful yeah. streets and trees. Yeah. So how do you how do you lift up that community without then tipping over that line to where it starts to drive out that community because of the development that happens there? You know, we have had a lot of conversations about this. Simple answer is, man, this is Amarillo. We don't we don't invest in old neighborhoods. We go build new ones on Playa Lakes. That's that's pretty accurate. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we've had. I mean, that's and that really is you know tongue in cheek, but at the same time, um, 
it's easier and probably more profitable to just go build a new housing development. We don't, we don't reinvest in old neighborhoods. You know I mean? Wolfland has stayed Wolfland because of the socioeconomic part of mm-hmm. Wolfland. Uh, same with parts of Bivens. So you see parts of Bivens that are, you know, still representative and doing well, but the edges of it, you know, you've seen that kind of poverty stuff creep in. And so, but Bivens has, it's solid, right? Mm-hmm. It's got a real solid core. San Jacinto doesn't. So there's no real impetus for people to go in and buy that really cool old house with old bones and, you know, fix it back up. Plus you've got decades upon decades of high crime and all the issues and you've got meth heads running around, you've got all the things. So the, it takes a lot of money and it would take a lot of vision to go in and say, Hey, we want to redo, you know, 25 square blocks and turn them into, you know, half a million dollar homes. Right. And nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to invest in that type of infrastructure that would really facilitate gentrification. So it's a little protected. Um, there's a historic district down Route 66 as well that, you know, I think protects a lot of our old buildings right. to keep them from being, you know, leveled and turned into, you know, the newfangled shopping center, um, which has happened if you go to Dallas and look at the Knox Henderson area or Lower Greenville or some of the same things that really have some similarities with Sixth Street. Um, they weren't protected. Hmm. So we have a little protection with Route 66 in that that I think will discourage gentrification in that area. It can happen, but I don't see it happening for a long time. I want to turn back to just thinking about your return to Amarillo in general. Um, having having gone away um, and then then kind of finding your you know yourself pulled back mm-hmm. here. D- does it feel like you've ended up in the right place? Does it feel like a surprise that you're here? You know, so many years later, so invested in this work, or are you still kind of like, man, I, I did not think I'd end up back in Amarillo. Still did not think I'd end up back in Amarillo. You know, I mean, if, you know, 15, 20 years ago, um, you know, I would, if somebody said, where would you be? Um, you know, my two answers would be across seas somewhere, mm-hmm. um, you know, be in Africa or somewhere like that, or living in Europe, or I'd be living in the mountains, you know, I'm like not here. So I still look at this and I'm like, I get it. I love it. It's cool, you know, but um, whether or not this is a place that, you know, ultimately my family and I stay, I won't, you know, I can't say Um, we know. And I know that this is 100% and I feel comfortable that this is where I'm supposed to be. And for this season to do the work that we're able to do, to invest in, to do what we do hundred percent, but I've got too much wanderlust, man. Like the world's too big. There's too many things to do, you know? And, you know, I hope later on in life, I think this will always be home base, but um, home base is not the place that you necessarily stay the whole time. But, you know, who knows? Life is life. I don't get to dictate how it goes. It just goes. Hey, Amarillo is sponsored this week by SKP Creative. When I asked the folks there what they wanted to promote this week, they said they'd like to encourage listeners to vote early for the November 3rd municipal election. Early voting is open now, and on the ballot is a small property tax increase that would allow the city to invest better in parks, public safety, and streets. SKP Creative points out that the proposed tax increase has been endorsed by the Amarillo Police Officers Association because it would allow the city to hire six additional officers. Again, early voting is open now, and the election is November 3rd. 
Learn more about SKP Creative at skpcreative.com. Okay, I'm back with Brady Clark. Brady, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes the fossilized skull of a crocodile-like phytosaur discovered in Potter County. In fact, phytosaur teeth are some of the most abundant fossils in the area. I've got a friend who has uh, some land down by the Canadian River, and he finds these teeth all the time. I love it. I I geek out on that so much. I love that stuff at uh, Panhandle Plains. So you can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, uh, the first question, and I've been asking this of of all my guests over the past, I don't know, year or so, uh, but what's one thing the pandemic or 2020 now into 2021 has revealed to you about local people? Yeah, we got big hearts, man. I mean, that's... There's a lot of negatives, but the positive, the um, the way that people came together, supported each other, um, was huge. I mean, we we were doing tons of food distribution, and um, that was not we don't that's not kind of our DNA, but it was what needed to happen, so we did. And the volunteers, the people that came out, the support, um, not just with the programs that we were doing, but with other things, were massive. Um, and it was coming from you know this sounds bad, but it is what it is. It wasn't just coming from big, um, wealthy nonprofits with a bunch of really wealthy white people running them. Mm-hmm. It was also coming from these grassroots organizations coming from the Heights and the Barrio and from other places that didn't have the resources and the power and you know the influence. They were coming from there and they were doing yeah. great things. And then you would see, you know, the you know these folks that were you know living in Wolfland serving next side by side with somebody who's living in the Heights of the barrio. And they were coming together to serve the community to help out. And that was for me, it was like this transcends this desire to help our community transcend socioeconomic barriers and people's heart for each other is not dictated by where they live and how much money they make. I love that. What does this area have too much of? I think Amarillo, one of the good things about Amarillo, one of the negative things about Amarillo as well is we have too much, we have too much of a kind of DIY individualism, Mm -hmm. um, that mentality. I think we have a little bit too much of that in so much as, you know, there'll be something good going on in a different area of our state or the country that's really positive. And we're like, yeah, but that's not who we are. Yeah. You know, like that rugged individualism. I think we take it a little bit too far sometimes. Okay. I can, yeah, I can see that. And, and that results in some of the, you know, some of the conflict we've seen during the pandemic. You know, is that nobody's going to tell me what to do 100%. kind of mindset, Yeah, which is great when you're carving out a living on an empty wasteland as yep. a farmer. Yep. <laughs> but yep. during a pandemic, not always helpful. So. Yeah, 100%. Um, what does this area not have enough of? I think we have, I think this is growing, but I think we don't have enough, um, you know, entertainment based on arts and culture. I think we lack um, that, that flair of, you know, yeah, I want to go do something, but I don't want to just go to a restaurant and eat. And I don't want to just go to a movie. Um, I want to be able to, you know, go see more bands. I want to go see music. I want to go, you know, enjoy more art. I want to go experience more cultural things. I think, you know, um, the Panhandle Plains Museum is amazing. And I love that. I wish we had more things like that, um, that really celebrated not just where we're going and the creativity and that's represented here, but also some of our history mm-hmm. um, going back, you know, thousands and thousands of years and really being able to kind of build on that and to, to make that more prominent. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? 
ruggedly independent, um, straight up. Like we, and then let them interpret yeah, that as yeah. they will. <laughs> That's exactly right. We, we're going to do what we're going to do. Uh, and we're not going to let anybody tell us what to do. Although five years later, we might decide to do that thing that we resisted before, but now we think it's our idea. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's your favorite street in Amarillo? Oh, that's really hard. Toss up. Uh, Julian. I like Julian a lot. Um, part of the appeal of Julian is it used to be an airstrip. Yep. It's a cool street. You know I mean? It's got some cool houses on it. I really like it. Drive by it. Drive down Julian almost every day. I think my family gets annoyed because every time I drive by it, I'm like, you know, kids, <laughs> this used to be an airstrip. That's why it's so wide. Yep. Yep. That's... You're doing the dad thing. It is man. a dad. It thing. is it's a dad thing. Dad I do thing. the same thing. Uh, my dad, my kids are like, and my wife are like, you've told us that. Yeah, times yeah. Before. Bivens Ranch, blah blah. Yeah. <laughs> um, either that or you know, I really, you know, I live on Lipscomb and I love that street as well. Um, I love you know, Brick and Elm, man. You know those old streets and just being able to walk through them and to enjoy the trees and and knowing also some of the history of the neighborhood. And I, man, I love the old, I love old neighborhoods. Yeah. And so that's probably toss up between those two. What's your favorite local restaurant? Does it have to be a brick and mortar? No. All right. That's going to be a toss up. Um, you know, one of our programs with square miles called path. Um, and it's a small business development program for low income women and minority owned businesses. And so we've got a few clients that have some food based businesses. One of my favorites Hands down, dude is a five-star chef in Dallas, and he's got a food truck here called Mi Gente, which mm-hmm. means my people in Spanish. It's Paul Leal, and he is phenomenal. And so it's this kind of Mexican fusion, Latino, or like Latin fusion food. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and so it's probably my favorite. The other is another good friend, and um, one that we're helping out is um, Black Fig Food with Ruthie. Yeah. Um, she's phenomenal doing catering and things like that. So when it comes down to restaurants, I, we eat almost, we eat lunch all the time at different places. So many wonderful locally owned one, but right now, right now, those are my two favorites. Okay. Yeah. Totally agree with both of those. What's your favorite local coffee shop? Palace for sure. Um, it helps that they opened up the one on Georgia and have a really killer bar there too. Um, so I think palace is my favorite. Um, I think I wish we had more coffee shops and we're working on a project right now with our friend Ryan Pennington from refugee language yeah. project and uh, a couple girls who have an organization called we find in love. And we're working on putting a refugee based um, kind of coffee and tea shop up on the North side of town to help with community wealth building and something like that. So if that gets up and going, that will be, that will be your time. favorite. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And when was the last time you visited Cadillac ranch? Does drive by count? No, you got to get out of the car. You got to oh, walk a little ways. Got to have been four or five years ago. Okay. Yeah. With somebody from out of town? No, I took my kids out there and my my youngest who was, I think, four or five at the time uh, to go out and see the thing. And, you know, that was it. Okay. We saw the thing. Yeah. It was what it was. Every kid should should see it. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's one of those like landmarks of Amarillo that yeah. you just at least got to go step foot on. Okay, Brady, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something related to the area. So what's one thing that you would want listeners to know about or to experience? I think what I'm going to, I'm going to endorse an organization. 
um, and they're friends of ours, but I love, love, love what they do. Um, I'm going to, I think my endorsements for blank spaces, um, right. I'm repping their shirt today yeah. and we love them. I love their, I love the focus on the arts. I love that how they're using the arts and using murals to empower and to educate and to kind of mentor high school kids in our area and giving them venues to go create, um, see an economically viable way for them to pursue their gifts and their talents. And so it's very unique. I think they're doing an amazing job of beautification in our community. Absolutely. They've worked with us at our urban farm project. Um, and I just, I think, man, they're stellar, stellar. So blank spaces. Sixth street right there in the middle of San Jack is a, place to see multiple yeah. walls that they oh, yeah. painted. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Cosign on that. Brady Clark, thanks so much for being on the Man, podcast. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate, Appreciate it. It's it a good time. And that concludes the episode. Thanks to Brady for the interview. And if you want to learn more about Square Mile Community Development, go to square-mile.org. Thanks, of course, to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to my sponsors, SKP Creative and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, who sponsors 8 Straight every week. This podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you, so thank you for listening, and because of the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash Hamarillo. Hamarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Chris Selda, Katie Linger, Barbara and Jim Witten, Jess Heredia, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Corey Burns, and Wes Reeves. This has been episode 220. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.